Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Today, we're going to be discussing the rapture. (laughs) But before we do, I would love to encourage you to visit proclamationmagazine.com where you can sign up for weekly emails. There's also a donation tab there if you'd like to come alongside us with your financial support. And we'd love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts because this does expand our reach. And it puts us in front of the eyes of people who may not even be looking for us. Yeah. So Colleen, before we jump into this topic, I have to ask you what you thought about the rapture as an Adventist. Can I openly mock? (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was the strangest, corniest idea, and I thought I was so superior because I knew there was no such thing as a secret rapture, haha, and what were they thinking? I knew how it would happen. There'd be that little black cloud, there'd be Jesus, he'd come and get us, and people would rise out of their graves in their Sabbath clothes and stretch up their arms and they'd be carried to heaven. Mm. And the idea of rapture, I thought, was stupid. Yeah, well, it's talked about as being just ludicrous. Yeah. People made fun of it openly. Yeah. There wasn't, there wasn't even a sense to, of, (laughs) of, you know, veiling that opinion. No, we weren't even nice about our disagreement. Even our teachers weren't. I I mean, going back and reading, I believe that it might even be in the What Adventists Believe book, they bring up the rapture and it's a little bit mocked. Yeah, it is. That's right. I thought of it as being on par with like touched by an angel or, you know, the angel in It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> it, it just this fiction that people clung onto and took a little too seriously yeah. that isn't remotely reflected in the Bible. That's right. You know, at least not in the Ten Commandments. It's a little like that <laughs> tinkle of the bell when somebody gets their wings. Yeah. Yeah. It was very mm-hmm. fictional. Yeah. And I thought it was ridiculous to believe this. And I was so arrogant. Well, we all were. What do you think of it now? Oh, it's my hope. <laughs> <laughs> it can bring tears now, huh? It's wonderful. And, and you know, the thing is, I understand for people who are newly out of Adventism, or maybe you're not even out and you're listening to us talk about it, it sounds crazy. In fact, I remember, Colleen, it was very early after I met you, I was pacing with my baby in my mm-hmm. arms. She was sleeping and we were at the Friday night Bible study, which often went late. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to keep her asleep and I stopped and I said, wait a minute. I don't remember what you were talking about, but I said, wait a minute. Do we believe the rapture? <laughs> and everyone looked at me and was almost like, what is she going to do? How is she going to handle this? <laughs> <laughs> and you were very kind and you just, well, you know, there seems to be some reason to believe it. You were just gentle about it. And I thought, well, why not? Everything else was wrong. (laughs) Everything else was wrong. And so all you have to do is spend a little bit of time really hearing a Christian out, hearing them talk about what is the Mm -hmm. rapture? What is it actually? Mm -hmm. What do you believe? And you're going to get a different story from what the Adventists tell you. About Christians and what they believe. See, I think that's one of the things we have to get as a starting point, we who've been Adventists. As Adventists, we were told by Adventists what Christians believe. Yeah. They didn't tell us the truth about what Christians believe. Number one, just related to the rapture, that's not secret. (laughs) 
Only no, in the movies. <laughs> only in the movies. You know, and the movies don't tell us the truth about what the Bible says. There's no hint that the rapture is secret. Number two, Adventists also believe in a rapture. Yes. They just don't know to call it that. Explain that, Nikki. Well, they'll argue that the word rapture is not in the Bible. Yeah. But the word used... In Thessalonians, for example, that says that we will be caught up together in the air. That is essentially the word rapture. The argument isn't about whether or not we're going to be caught up to be with the Lord. The question mark in Christianity is when. Yeah, it's the timing. Mm -hmm. And the timing, as we've become pretty firmly convinced after listening to Gary explain this yet again, (laughs) the timing can be considered in that theological triage pattern that we talked about, Mm -hmm. first order, second order, and third order. The timing is probably third order. It's not that important whether it's before the tribulation, mid-tribulation, or after the tribulation. What really matters is that the Bible says the Lord Jesus is coming for His people. He will catch us up, and we will forever be with Him. That is first order. Yes. Timing is the negotiable part, but we're here to say that when we look at the texts that talk about it, we're becoming increasingly convinced that it's pre-tribulation, but we will not break fellowship with Christians who think it comes at a different time. So before we get into the different views on the timing of the tribulation, we just want to go over the first order facts of the resurrection and the return of Christ. Now, we're going to talk about central passages when we go through this. And I just want to clarify, a central passage is different from a proof text. Yes, good point. A central passage is like the epicenter of a context that's going to teach what the Bible says in full. Yes, it's going to flesh out the concept. A proof text is yanked out of its context for a different purpose. Right. So, The central passage we're going to look at to discuss the events of the rapture is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and the central passage is that verse 15. Yes. There are five R's that we'll look at as we look at the passage, the central passage in 1 Thessalonians. There's the return of Jesus, that's the first R. There's the resurrection of dead believers, that's the second R. There's the rapture or the catching up of believers, that's the third R. There's the reunion to meet the Lord in the air, number four. And then, actually, we have to go back up into chapter 3, verse 13, where it talks about the return to earth. So, we have the return of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, the rapture or catching up of believers, reunion to meet the Lord in the air, and then the return to earth. So, there are those five things in 1 Thessalonians. Why don't we uh, read this passage, Nikki, since it's a central passage for the rapture. So, this is 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as indeed the rest of mankind do, who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, so also God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 
So, Nikki, I think most people who are Adventists have heard this or portions of this passage every time somebody they know dies. This is often read at funerals, but what is uh, perhaps different that we didn't see as Adventists? (laughs) Well, God's going to bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him when He comes back. And I remember the first time I heard a Christian point that out to me after I left, and this section was such a proof text section for me, for soul sleep. I know, right? For uh, the fact that you don't go to be with the Lord, I guess is the same as soul sleep. And Mm -hmm. also that whole archangel thing, which is a whole other topic, but this was a proof text. But if we can just jump over to the other text that you referred to in chapter three, at the very end of the chapter in verse 13, it's the end of a sentence. So I'm just going to read the whole sentence, but pay attention to the last few words. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Now, as an Adventist, I would have made my head interpret saints to mean angels. (laughs) Yeah, I would have too. It doesn't. It doesn't. No, he is coming with his saints. And then people say, well, how does that work? Because it says he'll bring with him those who've fallen asleep, but then the dead in Christ will rise first. And I want to say, this is telling us that we have two parts. (laughs) We have a body in the grave, dust to dust, and we have an immaterial part that goes to be with the Lord. And we know the central passages for that, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 9, Philippians 1, 22 and 23. The part of us that is immaterial goes to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And here we read that those of us who go to be with the Lord, He brings, God brings with Jesus those who have fallen asleep and the dead in Christ will rise first. So when He comes, He brings the essential essence of us and our glorified bodies rise from death in a twinkling of an eye, reunites our immaterial and new material parts, and raises us to new life. It's all here in the New Testament. And you know what? People will argue about that. And when I've had conversations with people who are questioning this, oh my goodness, the arguments are plentiful. And they always take me back to the Old Testament, the dead know not anything. And, you know, I want to say, first of all, that passage about the dead know not anything, that's in a context in the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon is writing about the perspective of the unbelieving. It's not talking about the actual reality of what happens. He's talking about the perspective of an unbeliever when they look at life and death. But I want to say this, there's another thing that we have to remember, and this was, for me, a really helpful thing. In 2 Timothy 1.10, Paul tells us that life and immortality were brought to life through the gospel. So, the Old Testament is an insufficient source for explaining the resurrection and for explaining death. It wasn't until Jesus broke the curse of death that life and immortality were fully brought to light. 
when we read these passages, we can take them to mean exactly what they say. We don't have to explain them away. God brings with him those who have fallen asleep, and then the dead are raised. The spirit and body are reunited. Now, I know when I started to unpack this passage and try to put a biblical worldview in my head and delete the Adventist proof texts and ideas, I really had to press into that whole sleep word. Yeah. And we don't have time to do that for this episode, but I want to encourage listeners, if you need more information about that, go and look up episode 18 and episode 20, where we talk about the human spirit and we talk about what happens when we die. That's a great idea. Just go look that up and we'll proceed with talking about how the resurrection correlates with the rapture. We have this central passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 where we learn that God brings with Jesus those who've fallen asleep, the dead in Christ will rise first. But what else do we learn here? We see that it isn't a private event. The Lord is going to descend from heaven with a shout, and there's going to be a voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet. We read the dead in Christ rise first, like you said, and then those of us who are alive, who remain are going to be caught up. There's that word. We're going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. When we talk about the rapture, that's the essence of the rapture. We're caught up to the Lord. When we talk about the timing of the rapture, we can look at a couple other places in 1 Thessalonians and see some hints. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, Paul says this, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Isn't that interesting? After that conversation we had last week about the day of the Lord and the wrath of God, this is a suggestion right here to the church by Paul in the New Testament, it says that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. Doesn't that remind you of his letter to the church in Philadelphia, where he says that he is going to keep them from the hour of trial that is about to come upon the whole earth? Absolutely. It's amazing. And then again, in 1 Thessalonians 5, the next chapter and the next few verses, right after the central passage we just read from chapter 4, Paul writes this, Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord, that's what we talked about last week, the tribulation, will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. And here it is, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, and again, 
encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. What do you get from this passage, Nikki? There's so much there. But I love the fact that he keeps telling the church to encourage one another with these truths. We're not to fear the coming of the Lord. We're not to fear the day of the Lord, as he points out in this passage. We're to encourage each other with this information because we're not destined for the wrath of God. Right. We're saved. We're in Him. And however that looks, because Jesus doesn't tell us completely how it will look, but He tells us we're safe in Him and we're not destined for wrath. And then, you know, there's just that little side note in verse 10 that whether we're awake or asleep, we live together with Him. Don't you love that? Yes. So when I think of some of our dear friends, like Charles, Mm -hmm. who has died and gone before us, and Stanley, people in FAF over the years, but we're still alive together in Christ, Mm -hmm. even though we're not actually able to talk to them, they're there and we're there with Him. And we'll never be separated. We're the body of Christ for eternity, Nikki. (laughs) So we see from that one central passage that the rapture includes the return of the Lord, the resurrection of dead believers, the rapture of living believers, reunion with the Lord in the air, and then the return of Christ to the earth. Now, let's talk about the timing of this. There are two main views, there are other views, but two main views, if you were to put them on the opposite ends of a spectrum. The first view that we'll mention is the view called pre-tribulation. And this is the idea that the Lord is going to come before the tribulation begins, that believers are going to be raptured and caught up at that time to spend time with the Lord, and that seven years will pass on earth, and then they will return with him. Mm -hmm. So it's not a third coming as some people will misrepresent it. It's actually a phased second coming. There's two phases. And that is a pattern in scripture. When the Jews thought of Messiah coming, they had no way to expect it would be in two phases like it has been. He came Mm -hmm. and he will come again. Yeah. That's one thing that they still get confused over is that the Old Testament so clearly describes a coming reigning king and a suffering servant, and they have trouble putting that together. They don't understand that it happens in two phases. And, you know, one of the common arguments I hear from people who are critical of the faith is that scripture contradicts itself, and they point to the different ways that Jesus talks about him coming back. But We see, just like the Jews see a suffering servant and a conquering king, we see Christ returning for his church, and we see Christ returning for punishment and judgment on the inhabitants of the earth. Right before setting up his kingdom. So the pre-tribulation view would say that believers will not go through his time of wrath. And the second main view would be post-tribulation. The post-tribulational view basically says that believers will be on the earth during the tribulation, the great day of the Lord, the seven-year period when Antichrist comes, and all of those things foretold about the Antichrist and the image to the beast and so forth take place. And then after protecting them through the tribulation and destroying his enemies, Jesus will then inaugurate the eternal state of the new heavens and the new earth and set up his eternal kingdom. Now, Nikki, we don't actually subscribe to that view, although we're not going to break fellowship with people who do. From our hermeneutic, from the way we read scripture, 
we just don't see that being what it teaches. We're okay if other people see it a different way and use a different hermeneutic. Absolutely. And Gary talked about some subcategories in this discussion. He says that subcategories grant the major premise of tribulationists that God has promised that Christians are exempt from his wrath. There's one view that is called the partial rapture, and he doesn't hear this very often. I have never heard of this one. I haven't heard that one either. The idea is that people go up in stages as they're ready. Now, I'm not sure how this works with human history. Does that mean people go up at varying times, or does that mean part of me goes and then another part of me is I'm more ready? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. This one's a little hard for me to understand or explain okay. what, what is thought by this. Okay. So then there's the mid-tribulationalists, and they believe that the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation period. They would say that Christians go through half of it. And, yes. and I'm not entirely sure how they arrive at that. And he didn't flesh that out in his talk. And then the last one that he mentioned actually was developed by someone he went to seminary with, which I thought was interesting, but it's not as common anymore as it once was. It's called pre-wrath tribulation. And the idea there is that the wrath of God would be poured out through about three quarters of the tribulation period. Believers will go through most of the tribulation, but are raptured before the wrath part is poured out. I will grant that people can see these things differently. I don't see those particular views represented in the text that I see. I don't either. So let's give a case for the pre-tribulation rapture. One of the things that Gary pointed out, which I really appreciate, is that there's not a single verse that anyone can turn to that solves the question. Even those who take the view that we hold. Right. We don't have a single verse that's going to solve this. It requires structuring different pieces of scripture together to build a picture of things while very carefully honoring the context of each yeah. of those passages. This is not the same thing as proof texting your way into no. an idea, which is something I would have been on guard for when I was first coming same out here. of Adventism. But kind of like the way that we study the Trinity. Yes. We pull from different parts of scripture to get a picture, a fuller picture. And you know what, Nikki, this method that you're describing of finding a fuller picture by reading different texts without one central passage proving a timing, this is the method that has helped me to see this more and more and more clearly. I've heard the arguments ever since I came out of Adventism, but as time has gone on and I read more and more of Scripture, I more and more see the suggestion that there is a pre-tribulation rapture. Not a secret rapture, not a silly, fuddy-duddy thing like, you know, people mock in Adventism, but there is something where Jesus comes and it's visible. Yeah, as you start to consider these different views and then you go back and you read the Word of God, you see how it, it takes shape. Yeah, in exactly. the text. Mm -hmm. Like Gary said, this is a case for the pre-tribulation rapture. It's not the case. And this case is consistent with what scripture says, but it is only a case. So I really appreciated the humility there that he led the discussion with. He explains his case for the pre-tribulation rapture in five statements. The first one is the fact that the believer's promise of exemption from the time of God's wrath seems to require mm -hmm. a pre-tribulation rapture. Yes. And we read those verses 
just a few moments ago out of First Thessalonians. In First Thessalonians chapter 1, 9 and 10, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Yeah. To me, that's a very compelling sentence. And then out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we referenced already Revelation 3, verse 10, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So his second statement was that you have to deal with what or who is restraining the Antichrist when you get over to Second Thessalonians yes. chapter 2. And he gives an argument for understanding the restrainer as the Holy Spirit indwelling the church. Well, here's the passage. Second Thessalonians 2, 1 to 4 and 8 to 10. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, I'm just going to interject here. The Thessalonians had heard from somebody that the day of the Lord had already come and that Jesus had already started taking his people home. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that hasn't happened yet. And then he goes on to explain, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So Paul is saying, don't worry, the day of the Lord has not come and it won't come. The great day of the wrath of God, followed by his appearing and setting up his kingdom, that won't happen until the Antichrist comes. And he describes the Antichrist. And we talked about this a little bit when we talked about Daniel, when we talked about that gap in Daniel 9. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And we've learned that there is that gap between the 69th week and the 70th week when the Antichrist will come and make a covenant with the many who is Israel. And in the first three and a half years, there will be a time of peace. And in the second three and a half years, he breaks his covenant. It says that right in Daniel, all those hundreds and thousands of years ago, it was prophesied. And there is the suggestion that when he makes peace with Israel, Israel will have the freedom to establish its Jewish religion on the Temple Mount again, which would involve likely the building of a temple. Whatever the case, the Antichrist will mimic God and he will set himself up in the presence where he would think God would be and take the place like Antiochus Epiphanes did in the temple 
when he overthrew Jerusalem and desecrated the temple. In fact, Antiochus Epiphanes, as we learned in Daniel, foreshadows what the Antichrist will do with Israel. So, Paul is saying the day of the Lord hasn't come until the Antichrist comes and performs all of these desecrations. And then it says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. He will mimic God, but it's by the power of Satan. And I would love to just jump in here and say, as an Adventist, I was terrified that I was going to be deceived by the Antichrist. But look at verse 10. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. These are for unbelievers. That's right. This is not what will threaten believers. So the issue of timing relates to the one who now restrains. The question is, who or what is restraining. And some people will say that this is the government. Some people will say it's the preaching of the gospel, but we see that it's a person, he who restrains. So Gary's position is that this is the Holy Spirit who's present in the church in a unique way. And that when the church is raptured, that unique presence of the Holy Spirit is what is removed. That is what is restraining the Antichrist from being revealed. I think it's interesting. Um, You were commenting earlier, Nikki, when Gary taught this at WordSearch eight years ago, there was a question from the audience about, well, how do you explain then if the Holy Spirit is taken out of the world? Who is involved in bringing people to faith during the tribulation? Do you want to talk about Gary's answer? I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, well, he said that for all of time, the Holy Spirit is God and He is omnipresent. He was here in the world before the formation of the church. Jesus told the disciples, He is with you, but He will be in you. So at Pentecost, God sent the Holy Spirit to indwell believers. And so that was a unique presence in the earth. And when believers are taken out of the earth, that unique presence will be taken out of the earth. But God is God and will always be God. And God is omnipresent. So the Holy Spirit will still be here at work. Yeah. I think that's such a significant thing because the church is unique. And as we've talked about, the church is not a replacement of Israel or a new Israel. It is included in the blessings for Israel, but the church is a new creation. Paul called it a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5. When we are born of God, we are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, and we become citizens of a new kingdom, and we are like almost like a new race, and we're the adopted sons and daughters of God. We are a new thing with new potential and promises, and we have the assurance that we are co-heirs with Christ. What He receives from the Father, He shares with us. That's why it's called a mystery. This wasn't something that we could foresee in the Old Testament. That's right. Christ in you is the hope of glory, and that is the mystery of the gospel. And mystery in this sense isn't like an Agatha Christie whodunit. It's something that simply wasn't revealed before the proper time. It couldn't be revealed before Jesus paid the penalty for our sin and broke the curse of death and inaugurated this new reality of new birth. The next argument that Gary gave for the pre-tribulation rapture is the contrast between what happens at the rapture and at the return seems to require it. 
there's a distinction between Jesus saying he's coming for his church and when he says he's coming for judgment. So in some passages, we're meeting him in the air, and in some passages, we return with him in his vengeance. And I want to say, too, when we look at Scripture through a solid hermeneutic, we are paying attention to audience and genre. So there are passages where you will read about last day events, where Jesus is teaching last day events to a Jewish audience. And then you will read in the epistles where Paul or Peter are talking about the return of Christ for his church. And it sounds different. This is not a contradiction if you can see this happening in two phases. That's such a great point. In fact, it makes a lot of sense of things that seem otherwise contradictory. For example, the Old Testament says that when he comes back, he will stand on the Mount of Olives and the mountain will split and a river will come out from the throne of God and flow down the Jordan Rift and make the Dead Sea come to life. That does not seem to match what First Thessalonians says about coming in the clouds and we will be caught up to meet him in the air. But if you see two different phases of the coming... The first to get the church and the second to establish judgment and his kingdom on earth, it starts to make sense. It resolves. So his fourth argument is a response to post-tribulationalists who do see a millennial kingdom on earth. He says that they see all unrighteousness being removed before the thousand year reign on earth, but they have to ask who's doing the sinning then. And who will be rebelling with Satan or who will be dying? Because Old Testament passages talk about that millennial reign as people dying and continuing to sin. And so they have to figure out who goes into the millennium with unglorified bodies. If there's a pre-tribulation rapture and the church is with the Lord as seven years pass on earth, there's still unresurrected people on earth coming to faith who will enter the kingdom. So it it just sort of deals with what is the millennium going to look like and how is that consistent with Old Testament prophecies regarding it? And just by the way, Revelation 20, which is clearly New Testament, does describe a great rebellion at the end of the millennium. So clearly sin is still alive at that point. And his last case for the pre-tribulation rapture is the fact that the church is not Israel that there are still promises to Israel that need to be kept. And if we're separated from God's plan for Israel in some aspects, it's also consistent to believe that we would be separated in the context of the tribulation as well. It's a great point. And this is actually our position that there is a pre-tribulation rapture. And as I said before, this is becoming increasingly clear to me as I look at more and more passages in context. But again, the timing of the rapture is a third order thing. And I'm going to be just fine if it's at a different time, (laughs) if it's mid-trib or post-trib. I will be fine because the Lord knows and I'm safe in Him. And I will not break faith with other believers who have different views of this. But we're saying this because as we walk through the rest of Revelation, these will be our foundational assumptions. And we're explaining to you where we're coming from. The first order issue that we're going to camp on here as we wrap up this particular podcast is the resurrection will happen. Mm -hmm. This is a certainty for all people, wicked and believing. The fact is that Jesus will come for his saints. He will resurrect those who have fallen asleep in Christ, and he will catch us who remain up and change us in the twinkling of an eye, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15. With these understandings, 
I'm just going to do a little summary of what we've talked about. In Romans 1, we learn that God's wrath is now being poured out on all of those who do not believe. And that is God removing his hand of protection from those who persist in sinning and in unbelief. And their sin grows deeper and more serious the longer they persist in suppressing their knowledge of God. The day of the Lord is the opposite of the Romans 1 wrath. God is no longer removing his hand, but his own hand is pouring wrath into the unbelieving world. We also know that Jesus tells us in the letter to Philadelphia and through Paul to the Thessalonians that the church is not destined for wrath or for the day of the wrath of God. We know that the resurrection is a certainty. It is a first order issue. And as Jesus goes, so go we. He died, was buried, and rose in a glorified body. And as we see that happen to him, he has promised he will do that for us as well. Our bodies and spirits will be united, and we will be physically glorified for eternity. The timing of the rapture is less clear. No single verse establishes the exact timing, but contextual reading suggests that we'll be taken out of the world prior to the day of the Lord. And the reason for this is that Jesus took God's wrath for believers when he hung on the cross. When we are in him, our shared suffering with him is complete. We're not destined to experience God's wrath. Our sin is either on ourselves or it's on the Lord Jesus. So as we proceed through Revelation with this understanding, we will read the events with this kind of as our foundation. And again, we're basing our understanding not on an attempt to make the Word say what we want it to say, but on a consistent understanding of the context of each of the passages we encounter. God's promises cannot fail. He will discipline Israel supremely, but ultimately open a foundation and a fountain of salvation for them on a single day. He will restore Israel, and he himself will reign over their earthly kingdom. Gentile nations will be ushered in with Israel, but the church will go to Jesus and come with him when he destroys his enemies and sets up his kingdom. And if you don't know, if you are one of Jesus's people, you can seal the deal. You can admit to him that you are incapable of being good, that you are hopelessly sinful and you need a Savior. And you can ask him to forgive your sin based on his completed atonement, his blood poured out on the cross of his death and his breaking the curse of death by his resurrection on the third day because his blood was sufficient for all our sin. And if you have trusted him, you also can know you don't have to fear the tribulation and you will be caught up with Jesus when he comes for his own. You can know that for sure. Join us next week as we return to the book of Revelation with a look at chapter four. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.